All right, guys, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to spend a few minutes more than normal, I think, before we get into the actual text today, um, because we're laying the groundwork for this chapter for chapter 7 on through chapter 10. We're, we're rejoining a conversation that was begun at the end of chapter 5 on the um, uh, Melchizedek priesthood, the order of Melchizedek priesthood that Jesus is of. And if you remember the author of the book of Hebrews at the end of chapter 5, he's continuing on with the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus is more superior than angels and, and more superior than, than Abraham and Moses. And, and on and on and on, these, these core things, these fundamental things that were very important and esteemed in the Jewish faith as these young, immature Hebrew believers who had not advanced spiritually in, in growth were being tempted and, and buying into some false teaching that was leading them away from Christianity. And so he gets to this discussion on Melchizedek to further illustrate the superiority of Jesus, and the author goes, whoa, we got to put on the brakes here. I want to talk to you about these deep things, but he said, you guys are like spiritually, spiritual babies where you can only partake of milk, and you, you can't yet dive into the deeper things of God. So there's this chapter 6, this interlude, if you will, where we spend some time speaking about spiritual maturity. And, and there was an admonition, a strong warning about not taking the, <clears throat> about a believer not taking the, the principal things, the fundamental things of Jesus Christ and going on into spiritual maturity, taking those foundational things and continuing on. So there was an admonishment, um, a warning saying, if you don't do that, you're at risk of these things. And this is what the Hebrew people were at risk of. Furthermore, there was an encouragement to continue to grow spiritually. And once that is concluded at the end of chapter 6, verse 20 is the transitional verse where the author of Hebrews kind of like raises his hands in the air. This is how I imagine. He goes, now we can get to the nitty gritty, you know, the good stuff. And so our attention is directed back to Jesus's ministry as high priest. And <clears throat> at the end of chapter six in verse 20, like I said, and at the beginning of this chapter here in chapter seven, continuing, and this is where, where I'm going to lay out a, a few chapters for us, because chapter seven begins to do this, to highlight the, the uh, ministry of Jesus Christ as the great high priest and brings forth the argument that Jesus' priesthood, which is of the order of Melchizedek, <clears throat> is superior in its order. That's the first thought. What does that mean? It means an order in regards to or as it refers to a category or a classification of which a priest might belong to. And for the Hebrew people, what we know is, is they were familiar with the Levitical order, right? The, the, the priests of the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron who, who were, uh, were the high priests who had the authority and the spiritual um, authority over um, the priesthood and as mediators for the Hebrew people. And so um, there's a superior order, the order of Melchizedek, which Jesus is of. And so chapter 7 begins to put this forth, this argument. Then in chapter 8, if you want to kind of follow the outline if you're taking notes. We're back to the superiority. <clears throat> the superiority of this order is established starting in chapter 8. And the emphasis is first put on the new covenant. Why is Jesus' superiority according to the order of 
Kilzadek better because there's a new covenant. He mediates a new covenant, a better covenant. <clears throat> we know that it's a covenant that's been established in his blood, right? We don't want to go too far ahead when we get to chapter 8. We'll go into all the details of that. But there's a better covenant. There was an old covenant. The Hebrew people were of the Mosaic covenant. They were delivered from Egyptian bondage and Egyptian slavery. And they walked across dry land through the Red Sea as God parted that and delivered them under the leadership of Moses. And when they came to Mount Sinai, God said, let's, let's, before we go any further, let's get some things straight. So I'm your God and you're my people. As long as, and then we know that the divine law and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and all of those things were put in place <clears throat> and, and there was a covenant established in those things, right? And that was an old covenant. We refer to that as an old covenant. Why? Because there's a new covenant. And, and so that's part of this focus uh, and establishing the superiority of Jesus Christ through his priesthood, a great high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Then, in chapter 9, the superiority of Jesus' order is further established as the place where Jesus ministers becomes the focus, right? We're told that Jesus ministers from a heavenly sanctuary. He has passed from earth into heaven where he is at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and in comparison, I'm so tempted to just go on and speak about these points, and I know I shouldn't because when we get to these chapters, we're going to go into them in detail. But the idea behind it is, is that the Levitical priesthood ministered from an earthly sanctuary, right? And the cool thing about it is when we look back to the Old Testament, we know that the tabernacle and eventually the temple, which became the permanent house, if you will, of God here on this earth, we were told from the very beginning that the plans that Moses got to build them, every single detail, was in accordance to a copy of the real thing, of what was already in heaven, okay? And so it was, it, what was here on earth was just a copy, and so the earthly sanctuary which the priest ministered to, is lacking because it's just a copy. It's not the real thing. Jesus ministers at the, in, in the real sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, and it's better than the earthly sanctuary. And then in chapter 10, it concludes this discussion and, and making the argument for the superiority of the, of the Melchizedek priesthood of which Jesus Christ is by contending that Jesus, our high priest, is greater or superior ultimately because he offers a better sacrifice not a sacrifice of bulls and goats and animals, right? But of his own blood, a sacrifice of himself. Now, this discussion was important at the time it was written. Think about it because the Hebrew people, they were very familiar with the Levitical priesthood as it pertained to the tribe of Levi. And I use that word familiar intentionally because... We are, we as human beings are all the same, down through generation, down through time, and familiarity is something that we all enjoy. We find comfort in familiarity, and often we become very uncomfortable when the things that are familiar to us are shaken or taken away or we're brought out of that. And we don't always respond in a positive way when that happens. And such is the case too spiritually. I was raised as a Catholic. I was raised in a Catholic uh, church. I went to Catholic school. I was an altar boy. I went through confirmation, and and um, I don't have anything against Catholicism. I believe that they preach Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith. I think there's a lot of other things that are add-ons that that I don't have time to get into. But I mentioned all of those things because that's what I was familiar with was Catholicism, 
And when I came to um, a Calvary Chapel where I got saved and gave my life to the Lord, I heard the Bible being taught verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And what I, come, what I came to find out was the things that I was familiar with in my spiritual understanding of things didn't line up completely with what God's Word said. And initially, it was very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable, that unfamiliarity of that. But at the same time, it was very freeing. It was very enlightening. Revelation was being given to me, and I entered into relationship with God with what I was being told and what I was being taught. And so I, I would challenge us, even in our own thinking of times, you know, to not allow that baggage of our past, whether it's physically, emotionally, or spiritually, to hinder us from what God has for us, to continue to be teachable, to have a teachable spirit. You know, not believing everything, but taking what we're told, what we read, and, and, and praying that God would, would give us truth and understanding so that we can receive the full benefits and blessings that God has for us. Because God had blessing and benefits for these Hebrew people who were familiar with the priesthood as it pertained to the tribe of Levi. And, and, and think about it, the, the, the priestly order of the Levites have been chosen by God. It wasn't something that someday Abraham, Moses, or any of the forefathers said, I got a great idea, let's do this. No, this was instituted by God Himself. They knew that. God had chosen the, 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 those from the tribe of Levi to serve in the tabernacle, and Aaron and his descendants to be the high priest. They had been appointed by God. And even though the priests had many failures, as we know, and weaknesses, for they were men who ministered to men, they had served God for this that to this point that we're reading now here, at the time of Christ, his time of the coming of the Messiah, they had served for centuries. This was deeply, deeply rooted in their lives, in their faith, in their belief. And so they're really being challenged. Again, we can see the, the temptations that would be, be there to, to, to go back. I mean, I can tell you right now, and part of my upbringing in the Catholic Church is, is I knew I was saved by grace, but as far as that goes, even though I didn't really conceptualize it at the time, part of my own spiritual immaturity, so when I, when I began to learn the Bible, I could connect some dots. But, um, you know, in, 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 in my upbringing at least, you know, there was this sense of performance-based relationship where God would be pleased with me if I did certain things, and then He was certainly unpleased with me if I did other things. And, and then, as a result of that baggage, it still creeps into my Christian life where I know that I'm saved by grace, sustained by grace, and that my Father's love is unconditional. Amen? And yet, I come with I battle with that baggage, and maybe you do too from other things, where you struggle with just resting and living in God's grace and forgiveness when you're confronted with your sinfulness and your weakness and your, your failures. But, but I want to be free from that and live in grace because it's better. It's better than condemnation. And the Bible says clearly there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and to be free from that baggage, to receive all the blessings that God has for us. And even though, like I said, these priests had these, 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 these failures and these weaknesses and they had served for century, but, but now the writer says this. He declares that that priesthood has ended. Think about the radical nature of that statement in light of who this was being written to. And, and really, as we see the spiritual application into our lives, this is a radical statement. The priesthood, the law, the Levitical system, the sacrificial system, the Mosaic covenant, he's, he's all saying, it's, it's over. The word that will be used is annulled. We'll talk about that. 
right? And to defend this shocking statement and to prove that the order of Melchizedek is superior to that of Aaron, three arguments are presented here for us. Um, there's a historical argument. If you're taking notes, this kind of gives us a brief outline of this chapter and the things that we're talking about. There's a historical argument that's brought forth as the account of Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek is referenced. Then there's a doctrinal argument as Jesus' priestly ministry is shown to be the replacement for the Levitical priesthood. The, the, the doctrinal thought behind that is, is if one is done, then what's the teaching in regards to what has replaced it? How do we still have a mediator? Who is our mediator? What is the means by which it's mediated, this relationship with God? And then lastly, there's a practical argument when we get into the end of this chapter and into chapter 8, as Jesus is shown to be the fitting high priest. That's the practicality of this. In other words, he's fit for us. He's able to perfectly meet all of our needs as our great high priest. And that's a pretty awesome and profound thing. So, this discussion is very important for us today because I think we as Christians regularly find ourselves focusing on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter's coming up, right? It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's very important. And we have every reason to focus on de Jesus' death and resurrection as that's where spiritual birth is found. That's where redemption is found. That's where forgiveness of sin is found. That's where victory of death is found. However, the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus Christ, as a result of his resurrection, think about this, Jesus Christ, as a result of his resurrection, is alive. Is he not? And as, he, as, a, as a live God, as a live Savior, he's now living and ministering as our great high priest. And this is equally as important especially for our spiritual growth as our lives are sustained with that truth, with that knowledge, with that information. And this aspect of our faith in Jesus is something that we need to understand. It's something that we as believers, as we seek to grow in our faith and walk on our faith, we got to give attention to. Do we give attention to this priestly ministry of Jesus Christ as it relates to that personal relation aspect that we have to him? And what that affords to us and what that means to us. Because ultimately this is what sustains our spiritual life. I, you've heard me say that, that God's the author and finisher of our faith, right? That God, our salvation is, is in Him. It's, it's given to us through Him. But it is sustained, our spiritual life is sustained in Him as well. Think about it like this. Um, uh, we were all born physically. You know, and there are aspects, you know, we feed and nourish our body, but who here makes their heart beat? Who here makes your lungs breathe? This is, these are things that are controlled by a divine God where one day he will say, okay, that's enough heartbeats, that's enough breath, so I'm bringing you home. But he's the author of life. He's the giver of life. He's the taker of life. But he's the sustainer of life, physical life and spiritual life. And when we understand that, man, that's a very freeing an encouraging and helpful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And so, it's important to remember that as a whole, the letter to the Hebrews was written as a defense for Christianity. That's really the foundational thought. And it lays out facts regarding Christianity as a better way. You've heard me say this multiple times as we've gone through. There's, there's many betters 
if you will, mentioned throughout the book of Hebrews. And in these next chapters, I'll draw your attention to it. There are four more betters mentioned, okay? If you're highlighting them or underlining them, they're, they're key things that our eyes should go to and, and what they're representing. In chapter 7 here in verse 7, there's the first better. Chapter 7, verse 19 is the second. Chapter 7, verse 19, and then chapter 7, verse 22 is the third. And then lastly, the fourth one will be found for us in chapter 8, verse 6. And I point them out because each one of these betters are the result of Jesus being the great high priest of the Most High God. Our great high priest of the Most High God. And these betters are what sustain us in our spiritual life. So we'll key into them. With that, let's pray and then we'll jump into it. Father... I thank you for each person here and those who are watching online. I ask and pray for your blessing upon their lives, Lord, that our eyes and ears and minds and hearts would be open to see and understand and to receive all that you have for us today, and that the knowledge, Lord, would be heavenly wisdom as it is applied to our lives. God, may your grace sustain us, may your grace be upon us, and may we be gracious with each other and those in our lives, and in God's his son's precious name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Verse 1. <clears throat> For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth, of, tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, this Melchizedek, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Okay, so that we have the historical reference, right? Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive, a, who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes. Tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, speaking of this encounter and this event and this, these two men, Abraham and Melchizedek, it says, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, molder men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Mount him. Now, stop there and we'll make it through the rest here in a little bit. This, this historical record, the historical record of this event that's, that's discussed here in these first 10 verses is found for us in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. Go and read it on your own. It's an interesting account. Um, it won't help you unsolve or, or um, let me just say this. Melchizedek, biblically speaking, is a mysterious individual. There are more unknown about him than what is known, okay? Um, but go nevertheless and read that historical account. And, and um, I will tell you this, in regards to the Bible, the only other places that Melchizedek is mentioned for your reading and trying to 
um, put a finger on who this man is and was and all of those things, um, we know that here in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is mentioned, um, but also in Psalm 110, verse 4, which will be later quoted in this chapter where it says in that psalm about the Messiah, right? The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that was speaking prophetically about the coming of the Messiah. And it was help to help the Hebrew people to not only identify who he is, but what, what he would be doing in his ministry and in his mission. And in light of this, I think it's important for us to get a right understanding of this comparison right off the bat that's being made between Melchizedek and Jesus the Messiah. And in doing so, let your eyes bounce down from verse 1 and glance over to verse 3 and take note of the fact that it's telling us that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Let's make sure we keep things in the right order as we're going through this. And that's what this verse is doing for us. In other words, it is not Jesus who, who, who has Melchizedek's kind of priesthood. Rather, it's Melchizedek who has Jesus' kind of priesthood, right? In fact, this phrase, made like, in verse 3 as it relates to Melchizedek, right, it translates from a Greek word. I know it, it's long, I can't pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try. It's a word that's used nowhere else in the New Testament, and it's, and it's a word that means a copy of, a copy of the original, a model. You know, we may even use the word facsimile, it's that same kind of a, a thing, um, meaning what it means then is that Melchizedek in his priestly ministry is a copy is a model of what of jesus the son of god and so we see primarily one of the um, the reasons for why we're even told about Melchizedek ever in scripture jesus the son of god now one of the things of importance i want to address before we begin is to let you know because some of you who are bible scholars are going wow Melchizedek, is he going to talk about this um there's a debate right among Bible scholars, as to whether or not Melchizedek was a literal king of a land, or if he was a Christophany, which simply means uh, an appearance of Jesus Christ as accounted and recorded in the Old Testament prior to Jesus' virgin birth and years that he lived upon this earth. And even though I have my opinion, I do not want to bring this into the debate or this debate in today's discussion other than to mention it. So sorry if you're disappointed. But the main point that is being made here in our text, let me tell you, it does not hinge on this debate. It does not hinge on whether Melchizedek was just a man or whether he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Because verse 3, look back to it, it's clear when it tells us that this Melchizedek was like the Son of God. And here's the main point. This is the main point. What is it? In other words, it's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. And so where do we want to put our attention on? Jesus or Melchizedek? Jesus as Melchizedek was like him in these things because Melchizedek opens up our understanding and deepens our understanding for the person of Jesus Christ in regards to his priestly ministry and that's what we do not want to be distracted from that's the important thing that's the main thing that's what will change our lives and so the person Melchizedek is referenced in order to example the priestly attributes of Jesus so that we may learn and we may understand better the priestly ministry of Jesus. So once again, it's not that Jesus was made like Melchizedek. It was, like, it was that Melchizedek was made like Jesus, the Son of God. In light of this, hear this, the first thing we're told about Melchizedek, look in the text, it says he was a king, right? Matter of fact, the king of Salem. 
And this word Salem is derived from the Hebrew word shalom, which is a word that means peace. And it's a, it's a peace unlike the peace that we might associate with our English definition of peace. It's, it's, it speaks more of a, of a state of being, an inner thing, not an outer thing. It's not a circumstantial thing. It's about health and, and wellness and, and, and spiritually and physically and emotionally and all of this. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderfully, beautifully encompassing word. Furthermore, when you study the account of Melchizedek's encounter with Abraham in Genesis, it appears that when Abram, because that was his name at the time before God had, 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 well, he was really referred to both depending upon what was going on, as was with the case with many of the Old Testament saints. But it, it, the name there is Abram. It's synonymous with Abraham that when he was returning back from this battle of the kings where his nephew Lot had been taken captive and he went to rescue him. This is when he encountered Melchizedek. This is just outside of Jerusalem, there at Mount Zion, which is the place means Mount Zion means the place where God dwells, the city of God. And I point this out because in Psalm seventy-six, verse two, we see as we kind of thread chase the thread through the Old Testament and connect some dots, we see that Salem is referenced synonymously with Zion. So, if, this is not the debate, don't go there with me, if Melchizedek was in fact a real person, more, more than that, it appears that in the context of what we're reading here and the dots that we connect, that he was the king of Jerusalem. Yara Shalom, which means teaching of or founding of peace. And I point this out because the fact of the matter is that Melchizedek was like Jesus in that Jesus is the true king of what? King of peace. He's a true king of peace. Melchizedek was a copy to help us understand and see Jesus in his priestly ministry as the king of peace. Listen, he's the prince of peace. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a passage of Scripture that we look at during the Christmas season where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And not only was Melchizedek a king as we read here, but he's also a priest, right? He's a priest of the Most High God, and the fact of the matter is that any priesthood is, is and should be evaluated according to the status of the deity of who is being served, which means that Melchizedek must have been of a highly exalted kind of priest, right? His order, his classification. Likewise, Jesus is a king and a priest, the Bible tells us, of the Most High God, El Elyon. And he sits, the Bible says, on a throne. And it says that he, as king and priest, ministers at an altar. And when we think about this in contrast to the Levitical priesthood, this is something that no Levitical priest could ever be or could ever do. In addition to this, verse 2 tells us, look here, that the name Melchizedek translates to mean king of righteousness. That does, not, does that not sound familiar? And, and we know that this is another title that had been prophetically given prophetically given to Jesus Christ, the prophet Jeremiah, writing the words of God in Jeremiah 23, verses 5-6, through six, says this, speaking of the long-awaited Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, 
Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will rise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. This is who Jesus is. Think about that. And in light of this, it's worth pointing out that righteousness and peace are often found together in Scripture because true peace can only be experienced on the basis of righteousness. And if we want to enjoy peace with God, be at peace with God, or be brought into peace with God, we must, the Bible says, there is no other way, according to Romans chapter 5, we must be justified. What does that mean? Declared righteous. By faith. That's what the Bible says. And this is because no human person can produce righteousness on their own because this would require a person to perfectly keep all the laws and all the commands of God. All the ones found in the Old Testament which is being referred to here in, in regard to the Levitical priests who mediated over that Old Covenant and that Old Law. The Mosaic system. The sacrificial system. And we go, well that's pretty hopeless. But we know there's hope for us through the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ because He is the Lord our our righteousness. And there is hope in Jesus as the Bible teaches us that our righteousness comes not through what we do, but through the sinless life of Jesus Christ and the perfect work of Jesus on the cross. We know that He who was sinless was made to be sin for us. That He who was righteous bestowed His righteousness to us. And for this reason, He's a better priest. No earthly priest can do that or be that. The Lord, our righteousness, the King of peace, the King of our peace, the King of our righteousness. And continuing on with this comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek, we're told in verse 3 this very interesting thing. It's a mysterious aspect of Him where it said, <clears throat> basically, He's not of his brothers, not of the ones that's being written up here. He was like the Son of God, having no beginning of days or end of life. And one of the things I want to mention about this, and if you want to take issue with me later, that's fine. Come talk. But um, I've always been taught, and I always think that the best way to teach the Bible is simply and simply teach the Bible. And like I mentioned last week, when it comes to interpreting scripture we 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 interpret the obvious or the obscure with the obvious and there's some obscurity to this so what what's the obvious when you study out the historical account of Melchizedek I think this statement becomes simply re uh, answerable because Melchizedek's mother and Melchizedek's father his genealogy not his birth not his death it's not recorded in anywhere in scripture and, and, and there may be more in the mysterious part of this to what's going on, but this is what we do know. And that's a significant thing because the Old Testament is laden with the genealogies of these biblical characters. And yet here it says, we don't know. We don't know. But here's the deal in regards to Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, we do know. And even though we do know His birth, His death, His genealogy, His parents, what we also know is, is that his birth was of a virgin birth, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
We know that He was crucified upon a cross, but we also know that three days later, He rose again from the grave into life. And in doing so, we know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And this influences priestly ministry. Again, a copy of the original, right? And it's a significant aspect because Jesus is unlike the high priest who descended from Aaron. How's that? For every one of the high priests who ever came from the tribe of Levi, they had a beginning and an end. Their genealogy is recorded. We know of their birth. We know of their death. And once they died, they had to be replaced, right? Once Aaron died, his sons stepped in. Once his sons died, someone else stepped in. Why? Because they were born and they died. They born and they, they died. They had to be replaced. However, Jesus who lives forever, and this is the point of that, that statement about Melchizedek. Anyway, let's get to the, the main meat of it. Jesus who lives forever will never need to be replaced. He lives forevermore, the Bible says, as an advocate. And He makes holy intercession for us. Now think about that for just a second. This is such a humbling thing, guys. An advocate, an intercessor on our behalf even as a great high priest, the Prince of Peace, the, the Lord of Lords, the Lord of our righteousness, lives forevermore to serve us. That's humbling. And He willingly does so. And He says, come, I'm here for you. Come to Me. He serves us. You know, the Bible mentions that there is coming a day when you and I will be taken together to heaven. Some will go before us to death. Some of us will go together at the rapture. We'll be there at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And Jesus will, will know Him and He'll have the holes, His scars will be there of His crucifixion. And He'll testify to us of His great love for us. And we will be seated. I think this is literal. I don't know how it's going to look. But it says, Jesus will rise up to serve us. I feel like, Peter, Lord, not my feet. You're not going to wash my feet. You're not going to serve me. You sit. Think of who he is and what he's done for us. But in his priestly ministry, every single day of every moment of our day, he's there available for us, ready to go, what can I do for you? What are your needs? Here I am. What an advocate. Living to make holy intercession for us. And the other significant thing about Melchizedek told to us in verse 4 is the fact that Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And there's just this other aspect of establishing the greatness of Christ greater than the, the Levitical priesthood Melchizedek was. And here's the thought behind it. Abraham accepted that Melchizedek was greater. He's, and this is what the author is saying. You don't take my word for it. Take Abraham's word for it. Let's look what he did. Your forefather. Seeing who is greater by, 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 by giving, he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And, and, and also, Abraham acknowledged that he was greater when he received the blessing that Melchizedek gave in return. And, and in regards to a blessing, especially this kind that's being spoken of, we need to understand that it's not just this simply wishing of good to others which may be done by inferiors to a superior or to even peers among peers but in this regard it's the action of a person who is authorized to declare God's intentions to bestow good on another in the name of God I bestow a blessing upon you 
I am God's priest, his holy priest. I'm not saying that about myself. I'm saying that that's the idea. And Abraham is receiving that blessing of the Melchizedek from Melchizedek. And both of these are important to take note of because they establish the fact that Melchizedek was greater, or as verse 7 points out, the better, right? And Abraham and his descendants, including Levi, are the lesser. Therefore, Jesus, here, here, here's where it all comes down to. Jesus, who has become the great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, is better than those who are of the order of Levi. And this is because Jesus being the greater one, is because Jesus being the greater is the one who blesses us. Jesus being the greater is the one who now blesses us. And the fact of the matter is, is that being blessed by Jesus is one of the things that helps to sustain our spiritual life while we live here on this earth. And, and I, would, I would ask this rhetorically, how can, your lives, how can your lives be sustained spiritually if Jesus isn't the one blessing it? Any answers? <laughs> there, there is none. Think about it like this. The psalmist said this in Psalm 27. Verse 13, he said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I'd seen the goodness, the blessing of the Lord in the land of the living. And that's true. We will lose heart. We will lose hope. We will have no sustaining of our spiritual life that is not for the ministry, the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ who says, I have the power, I have the authority of God to speak God's intention, God's blessing, which is good upon and into your lives. And as we continue on with this historical account, or as we continue on the histori- with this historical argument involving Melchizedek, now it transitions into the doctrinal. And this is where we see the second and the third better. Um, it's further to, they're, they're given to further illustrate the superiority of the high priest ministry of Jesus. And these other betters, so we, we have the better blessing that's attached to it, but we also have a better hope by which we draw near to God. A better hope by which we draw near to God. And we have a guarantee, guys, of a better covenant. And these two additional betters, they highlight this need even more so, I think, um, for the, a new priesthood. And they also help us to sustain our spiritual life. And so in verse 11, it says, Therefore, so therefore, because of all this, why therefore if, here's a question, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it it would, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. That is an amen. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another who has come not according to the law of the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Wow. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, listen guys, for on one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of the weakness of its weakness and of its unprofitableness. For the law was made nothing 
The law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. An annoying and a better hope. And these verses take this whole discussion into this huge step forward because it's one thing to say, especially to a believing Jew or one who had been rooted in, 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 in Judaism at this time, and say, hey, Melchizedek's greater than Aaron, but um, it's a whole other thing to say that Melchizedek has forever placed, replaced the order of Aaron. And the reasonable question that would have been asked in light of this is why would God enact such a radical change, right? The answer is within these verses. That's what's being proposed and answered. Why would God institute now a radical change? And the simple answer that is given in these verses is the, Levi- the Levitical priests, the Levite priests, were imperfect. And the sacrifices that they offered, right? The priests were imperfect, and the sacrifices that they offered could not make anyone Perfect. And it's these things that show a need for a different order of priesthood. And I want us to take note of the fact as we go through these verses, starting here in verse 1, that this reference to perfection at the beginning of verse 11 has nothing to do with sinlessness. Rather, it has to do with this. Having a perfect standing before God. Okay, that's the idea here. In other words, let me put it this way. It's important to note Because perfection, in this sense, a perfect standing before God, is the unconditional requirement that is needed to draw near and to be in fellowship with God. To have a perfect standing before God. But the law, according to verse 19, look here, made nothing perfect. The law, according to verse 19, which made nothing perfect, was never given for this intention of making us perfect. Of giving us a perfect standard, a perfect standing before God. The law was never given for the intention of giving us a perfect standing before God. And the Apostle Paul points this out in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 14. Verse, excuse me, Galatians 3.19 and on through chapter 4, verse 7. And he gives this whole discourse on it, but he simply says this when he speaks of the law and the purpose of the law and the reason for the law. If it was not for giving us a perfect standing before God, right, then what was it for? He said it was added to serve as a schoolmaster in order to show us our need for a Savior and to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Therefore, the Mosaic system of the divine law was never a permanent system. That's what we are forced to conclude logically. This is what the author is doing for us. Hear this again. The law was added to serve as a schoolmaster in order to show us our need for a Savior and to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Therefore, the Mosaic system of the divine law was never a permanent system. God knew this from the beginning. He set it up this way from the very beginning. However, we see that God's divine law is valuable in this sense. Paul doesn't condemn it in that way. He says it, was, it, it shows us God's perfect standard. How could we know what God's perfect standard was and is if we did not have the law? But it was not ultimately intended to be, here's the heart of it. It was not to be the means or ultimately the, 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 the way by which men and women will walk with God. Why would that never happen? Why 
Was it never tended to be that? Because it doesn't give us a perfect standing before God. And we can't have fellowship with God. We can't walk with God without having a perfect standing before Him. And God's divine law provides the expert diagnosis of our sin problem. You look at the law, you go, I'm a sinner. I'm in trouble. There was one, one man one time who I had the opportunity of leading to the Lord, and um, he had gotten in trouble with the law, <laughs> the, the law, and um, he started to read his Bible. You know where he started? I told, I told him, start in the book of John. Well, he didn't. He started in the book of Leviticus. <laughs> and about three weeks into it, he called me and he said, he said, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. And the Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, lays out the law, God's law. And he, was, he saw himself as a, in the mirror of the book of Leviticus, and I don't, you go read it, but <laughs> he was convicted and cut to the heart. To, to, his sin problem was diagnosed. And he called me, and it was basically, what must I do to be saved? There's no hope for me. It offers an expert diagnosis for our sin problem, which is absolutely essential for us as the law reveals ultimately then therefore our need for a Savior. But hear this, the law does not provide the cure for the sin problem. And we, in our, in our wrong ways of thinking, guys, somehow can go to that, just like the Hebrew people. We can be deceived into thinking that very thing. That I can go to the law and the sin problem can cure me. But only Jesus can save us from our sin problem. So when God says here in verse 17, which is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He was, as verse 18 puts it, by saying that annulling, annulling the former, the Levitical priesthood that had been founded in Aaron. Why? For something better. But along with this annoying, literally the putting away or the setting aside of the mosaic system of the divine law, we, in the other hand, have been given a better hope by which, through which we draw near to God. And this better hope with a better way by which we draw near to God is through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We live this out every single day of our lives as it's afforded to us as a blessing from God. As Jesus, who offered himself as a sacrifice for us, has accomplished what the law could never accomplish accomplish for us and as a result of our faith in Jesus hear this you and I we now have a perfect standing before God because Jesus who is faultless is able to present us as faultless and our great high priest presents many sons and daughters to glory Listen to Colossians chapter 1. We're about to wrap it up. Verses 19 through 23. Here it, it says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated in enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you me you us as holy and blameless 
and above reproach in His sight, if indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under the heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Furthermore, a little further on in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verses 11-14, through 14, it tells us this, In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You have been buried in Him with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working of God. Again, once dead and then alive. That's the, 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 the imagery there with baptism, who raised him from the dead, right? And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. Wages of sin is death. A debt that we could not pay that we owed. It says this He set aside. Nailing it to the cross. Corey, if you want to come up. Listen. Since we have a better hope in Jesus through which we draw near to God, we are wrong to go back to building our Christian walk on the law or on any other work apart from the work of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you today, maybe even within our church or in our hearts, but within the church today as a whole, legalism is an, is an awful evil that creeps into the hearts and minds of believers every single day where we set ungodly standards for ourselves and ungodly standards for others as a means by which they or we think we can be accepted or found acceptable by God and it's lies. Therefore, we acknowledge that the law is annulled. Do we agree? Do we agree? The law has been annulled, set aside in the sense that it is no longer the dominating principle of our spiritual life, especially in regards to our relationship with Jesus Christ. The law does not give us a better hope. The law does not draw us near to God the way that God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ does. We are sons and daughters of grace. Grace upon grace. Grace for grace. Ministers of grace. May we learn to live in grace, walk in grace, and be gracious with others around us. So God has replaced the order of Aaron with the superior order of superior order of Melchizedek, so we can have a better hope through which we draw near to Him. But listen, there's still one more better to come in this chapter. Something for us to consider, and it's the guarantee of a better covenant. We'll get to that next week. Father, thank you for grace upon grace. Thank you for new life in you and hope in you and the sustaining of our life in you through your great high priest ministry on our behalf. Lord, if you stand there in heaven before God the Father, waiting continually to serve us, to minister on our behalf, Lord, may we not be so proud as to not come. May we not be so deceived or rebellious, Lord, to think that there's something better than you waiting for us. You minister grace and mercy. 
And you tell us to come boldly. And Lord, in the areas of our life where we turn to something other than you, Lord, what a, what a, we're sorry. And I pray that you would forgive me and you would forgive us who have called out for that same forgiveness today. And Lord, we run into your loving arms. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.